Welcome to Social Studies, a podcast covering news from tech Twitter and analysis from the social sciences. I'm your host, Brett Goldstein. Let's begin. All right, Chris, why don't you give a little bit of an intro? Like, who are you? What are you known for? What do you want to be known for? All that stuff. Well, my name is Chris Messina. I am a product designer, a technologist. I'm best known for inventing the hashtag whose birthday is actually coming up on Sunday. It'll be 13 years old. So it's my little teenager, which has become quite, quite unruly. But I've also spent some time working on the open web and on web standards, web technologies, on developer platforms. And I, I think I just I occupy sort of a strange space kind of in the Twitterverse and on the internet because like I kind of speak like developer and technical concepts, but I'm not a developer. Um, I'm more of a designer. And so I just care a lot about making things that I think people are able to use and to benefit from and uh, demystifying technology so that it feels less, you know, overpowering and encumbering and like, oh, I don't want this tech in my life. It's like, well, tech is us. So if you don't like it, then we actually have a problem with ourselves. So let's talk about that and let's figure out whether or not things that we build outside of ourselves are the solution or ways to reform ourselves internally and emotionally and uh, mentally actually would be a, a good place to start. So you said the hashtag is turning 13 years old, so it's having its bar mitzvah. Uh, <laughs> it is. You wrote a piece called uh, What the Hashtag Means to Me. I'm wondering if you had any kind of like a refresher on like, what does the hashtag mean to you on its bar mitzvah? <laughs> no? Well, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I, I woke up in the middle of the night and, you know, so like my, my acupuncturist told me that if you wake up at 3 a.m., you know, she does a lot of like Chinese medicine. And apparently that's when like the, you have your spirit that leaves you during the day and like goes out and finds cool shit and like inspiration. And then if, if you wake up at 3 a.m., um, it, it reenters your body basically and sort of causes you to have green. So anyways, I have these, these things where I wake up at 3 a.m. and have these thoughts. And since, I don't know, 2010, 2012 or something, I've sort of been sharing the story of how I invented the hashtag. But it occurred to me that maybe I actually have, I have it wrong. Like, what if the hashtag invented me? You know, like, what would that mean? And, and what does that, what does that like have to do with? And I think if the hashtag invented me, what that is, uh, I guess, is, is sort of giving us the sense that, that individuals can in their lifetime have an enormous impact on like the world around them in really unexpected ways. And so, you know, the, the hashtag, like I think about, okay, the, the, the cousin of the hashtag is like the dollar sign. No one knows who invented the dollar sign. No one knows who invented the euro sign. Well, maybe you could find that one out. That's probably more recent. However, the, the, the point is that the way that like written language evolves and comes into place and then becomes broadly used. I mean, one tells, tells us two things. One, that human language and human communication is so important to the human experience. You can't really separate those things. And so much of what we do is trying to create more clarity and alacrity in communicating with other humans and even with ourselves. So the hashtag would somewhat be, I think it wouldn't have as, as clear or as interesting like a story about humanity and about how we're trying to get each other to see each other and to notice us and to see the struggles that we're going through and what our experiences are if it didn't come from a person. And that person happens to be me. And so the hashtag needed me to be able to explain that like sometimes there are moments of, of inflection where like a new technology or a new medium or 
you know, a new vessel for human meaning emerges on the scene and then is transformed in a moment because a, a human recognizes like that, that there's a hole, that there's a gap, that there's something that isn't there that could be there. So I guess if anything, like what the hashtag sort of means to me now and, and to understand my relationship to it is that I, I kind of have to be like a bearer of its message, which is that we are both responsible for technology and also the consequence of technology. And that I think changes the nature of our responsibility and relationship to it. So we've been in a number of conversations about uh, identity and identity is yeah. a hot topic lately. Talk to me about how you think technology has changed identity and how technology is going to change identity going forward. When I was starting out on the web, you know, in the late 90s, the very late 90s, there was this desire to have a separation between your real world identity and your online identity. That those people who are on the internet, you know, you didn't know who they were. They might be weirdos, they might be skeevy, they might be sketchy. And so you didn't want to reveal yourself or else it could be very dangerous, you know, hence so, uh, like such as the nature of, of new and unknown territories. I used to have a handle, which was Factory Joe. And that was like my, I think that was my AOL name and it was, you know, whatever, you know. And uh, there was a, a certain moment at a South by Southwest where I'd had too many drinks. And, you know, I was like, fuck it. Like, you know, I keep giving these talks and after the talk, someone will come up to me and they'll ask me, hey, Joe, like, you know, what do you think about this? Or Joe, that was a great talk. And I'll be like, that's not my name. So there was this merger happening between like my online identity and my real life identity that just seemed to becoming to, to, to becoming to be cumbersome. And so I realized that I needed to like combine these things. So anyways, so I, I hopped on Twitter and back then you could like change your username easily. So I changed my username from my previous Factory Joe into Chris Messina. And within moments, the Factory Joe handle was registered by someone else. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, there is no value to anyone else in the world in having that. And of course, I just broke all my Twitter links. Like, it was, you know, back then, like, I was, I was doing some serious damage, you know, to the fabric of the web. And anyways, I was freaked out and I was like drunk, but I was like, whatever, you know, now Factory Joe is dead. I'm moving forward. And anyways, it turned out that it was a friend of mine that was like totally like pranking me and I was very susceptible. But regardless, like it had this, it was this, this moment where I had, I went to like the digital death and it, it did two things. Like one, it kind of gave me this sense of how important these digital representations are and how much we come to identify ourselves like through them. And then second, what does it mean to actually reveal your true self in the online space and to remove that pseudonymous separation that allows you to express yourself in ways that maybe you feel like you can't in your everyday lived life, you know, around other people. You know, the way that shame kind of washes off kind of like the digital veneer of uh, a pseudo avatar is very different than, you know, having to show up to, to work or to wherever you are in life, you know, in one form or another that's kind of socially acceptable, but is actually not truly who you are. So it's a roundabout way of getting to, you know, answer your question, but we seem to be in a moment where there's a lot more both playfulness and also risk involved with the ways that we present ourselves online. Like there is, if you think about cancel culture, if you have a real identity, which is canceled, it is very hard to recover from that. But if you are purely fictitious or you use a pseudonym, then that canceling kind of washes right off. In addition, we're also witnessing the huge impact that 
pseudonymous collectives are having on our collective psyche. For example, QAnon or, yeah, I mean, I guess Q would be the biggest one there, which is kind of like a collective or a collective identity where many people, kind of many souls come together and collectivize their thoughts. And then you can't sort of kill the thing because it's infinite in scope and scale. And it's like, uh, I forget what the movie was, maybe V for Vendetta, where like everyone wears the mask. And so everyone is the, you know, is both guilty and innocent at the same time. The way in which identity is shaping up now is that it is both the key to unlock all personalization, access to your accounts, access to your history, to your messages, to your friends list, to all these things. And it is also a huge burden to keep it safe. You know, like uh, an example of this is having the username Chris on Instagram, like the number of people that are trying to constantly hack my account or ask me to give it to them for no other reason than because they're 12 and they think that they deserve it or what that type of name means to people to have it. It's, it's, it's a trophy. These are all things that didn't exist before. You wouldn't have any way of relating to them. And so I think that we're starting to see the value of digital identity as a type of currency and building a kind of you know legacy or exhaust behind a digital identity is becoming increasingly important. And that may be related to why Substack and e email newsletters are becoming important because you need to now have some evidence that goes over time, your, your own personal evolution and the fact that you are more likely to be a real person than a fictitious or synthetic entity. So I think we're right at the cusp of this major shift probably over the next five years where it's gonna be increasingly difficult to tell what anything is and if it's real or not. And the way, to, the way in which we'll be able to synthesize real-like characteristics and behaviors and habits will sort of blow this question out of the water. And so I don't know what that leads to or where that goes, but that's something we're definitely gonna have to start grappling with. The concept of a multi, like a multi-human singular identity is a, a wild, like wild. Identity, yeah. Collective identity, collective consciousness. Well, but this is how it is now, right? So if you think yeah. about any Twitter account, right, that is a brand account, and there are multiple people who can log in, you don't actually know necessarily who's behind it. True. So for example, my partner talks to Esther Perel on uh, Instagram, but sometimes she doesn't know if it's staff or if it's actually Esther Perel. Oh. And so like, and there's no way to really know. And sometimes it is her and sometimes it's not. So there is this kind of like meta identity uh, thing that is happening just by virtue of the fact that you as a single individual that does a good job of, let's say, branding yourself, can't even scale yourself to the number of interactions that you open yourself up to if you come become well-known at all. Like I think Gary Vaynerchuk probably is a robot. Like, I, I don't know if he's made of flesh and blood anymore. I know that he has a team of people you know, I like I listen to his podcast and he's like, you know, also recording a YouTube video and he's also on Instagram live and he's like recording a reel and he's like on Snapchat and he's like doing community on text message. Like, I mean, he's a beast, but he has people that he just like offloads things to. I, I sort of imagine him as like this kind of octopus that just kind of like, you know, tethers around and, you know, he has like tentacles on all, all over everything. Uh, and it's like, you know, sort of looking at things and like, you know, poking them and anyway, but that that I think is how digital identity allows us to free ourselves from the limits of one mouth, two eyes, two ears. The nose isn't that relevant to the internet right now, but you know, the other parts are. Yeah. One quick point here. It's like, it's fascinating thinking about like basically turning one or several humans into a brand, like a non-human entity mm -hmm. or turning a brand, which is made up of multiple humans into mm -hmm. a human. Right. right. Well, Michaela, Michaela would be a good example of that. Yeah. Right. Oh you know, yeah. So she's a good example. And then even the eye mouth eye, like little Twitter thing, you know, that to me feels like the closest thing to QAnon that, you know, sort of 
our you know friends have produced. Can you talk a little bit about interactive media? So you mentioned before hashtags enabled this kind of participation and interaction that wasn't really possible before. It was truly a, a, this breakthrough technology in terms of interactive media. Where are we right now? Where are things going with interactivity? I had another one of those thoughts this morning when I woke up at 3 a.m. And yesterday, Facebook, I think, deplatformed or kicked off a bunch of people who were you know, posting stuff about QAnon, but they were also using certain hashtags. And I know that Instagram and Twitter have all banned certain hashtags or like you try to do a certain kind of hashtag, those things don't show up. And the thought that came to mind, and I'll, I'll speak specifically about interactivity, but I think this is relevant. You know, is, is like what is, is, is banning hashtags or certain concepts the equivalent of book burning today? Because we look back and we think of book burning, book burning you know, and we think about how, how intellectually uh, insecure people must have been to need to destroy ideas that were written down and, and for which, you know, there was media that could be shared and then read and then people could make up their own minds. So if we are shutting down hashtags, which to me is like a fascinating moment to recognize the power that these networks have over our ability to think and to reason and to question and to realize that maybe we are as individuals unable or not safe to process this information because of the type of manipulation that we, our minds were just not built for, then that gives me pause about what type of interactivity is allowable. Essentially, it's creating, you know, bumpers like, you know, in a bowling lane or guardrails to say, you know, these thoughts are okay for you to have, but those thoughts are not okay to have. And if you talk about those things, then you're probably a terrorist, and in which case you don't have a place in society because you're going to hurt other people. And I don't know when the mere presence of thoughts and questions turns into being an affront to, I don't know if it's like high-mindedness or, or like, you know, where the question of intellectual freedom comes into the, 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 the picture. Clearly, there's like a lot of negative stuff that's happening. Clearly, there's a lot of people who are being hurt. Clearly, there's a lot of people who are able to come together and to, you know, speak up on behalf of each other for the collective pain that they're feeling, you know, whether it's because of racism or colonization or sexism or just otherism, you know, you're not like the mainstream, so therefore you're not good. But at the same time, we have to be very careful with the degree to which we force certain types of interactivity through the mediums that we create. And I just don't know if more transparency is ultimately better or if actually restricting people's ability to, to think, you know, freely is, is necessary, I guess. It doesn't quite answer your question precisely in terms of interactivity, but it's a meta question that I have, right? Because you also look at like, well, you Jason, let's see if it actually connects, but I'm looking at what's happening with like the metaverse and Fortnite. There's a certain set of activities within, you know, Fortnite where people are you know, interacting, they're like building things, they're shooting at each other, they're running around, they're doing the things, that they're emoting. There's a certain set of behaviors and interactions that the game designers have said, you can do these things and nothing else. Like, although you can build things in Fortnite, you know, you can't like script the entire experience. Like, I don't know if you remember, there was something called uh, Red versus Blue, which was essentially kind of using 
the characters of Halo as puppets in a kind of soap opera drama. It's amazing if you want to check it out on YouTube. But the fact that you could script that environment and turn it into this, into a place where you could have different types of interactions, a lot, like created a whole new medium of expression. I don't know if Fortnite and other contexts like that that are highly controlled and where the interaction, although expansive, is on the rails, you know, is more like Westworld or not. So what does it mean to design for humans? Like what is actually, what is human-centered design? We hear this word all the time, but I wanted to ask you. Hmm. Well, you know, sometimes it's useful to take a turtle and turn it upside down and to see how it like responds. So if I were to take this concept and do that to it, I guess the question would be like, well, what are human-centered designs or what are design-centered humans? And by that, I kind of mean, what is like the dialectic, I think, between either like a technology or a product that uh, on the one hand can be self-descriptive. In other words, by looking at the thing, you kind of get a sense for what it does. You know, like you look at a knife and it's sharp. So you're like, oh, I could probably stab something with that. And then if you tried it, oh, it turns out, yes, it, it, it's a good stab-worthy vessel. Digital technology oftentimes doesn't have the same kind of affordances. Sometimes you have to see these things in context. You know, like, this is not a good example, but it's coming to mind. I was listening to Kara Swisher's podcast um, today, Pivot, and she was talking about how her son doesn't know how to use an envelope, which is like kind of mind blowing. But of course, you know, there's a generation that hasn't grown up with mail. And so when, you know, he sort of maybe saw other envelopes and didn't really know how they worked. And so put his, put the, the, the recipient's address in the return address spot. Like there's nothing about an envelope that kind of expresses to you that the destination address should go in the center of the envelope. Like, I don't know if I would call that like a human centered like design product. It's just sort of through convention and through culture, you figure it out. I think there's a lot of things like that, that we're, we're in this very interesting phase where, okay, let me, let me, let me back up a little bit. Because what I'm trying to get to, I think, is maybe what are either declarative or like interfaces that start that are progressively revealing, but also allow you to inspect them in a certain way. So by by being self-descriptive or self-disclosing, what I mean is that uh, software or technology needs to understand its capabilities to be able to allow you to inspect it somehow, which could just be asking questions of it. Hey, you know. Like Siri, can you do this? Or, you know, hey Google, you know, can you do this? And it can say, yes, I can do that, or no, I can't do that. Because the ability of technology over time is only going to increase in complexity and scope. And if you provide buttons for everything they can do, the user is going to have no idea what it can do. I think if you think about the iOS um, home screen, which of course is about to change with um, the next iteration of iOS, where widgets and stuff like that will happen. I don't think that the icon metaphor for apps will live with us forever. Eventually the boundaries and borders between applications need to erode because the number of choices actually get in the way of you doing the thing that you want to do. There are so many times where I kind of, you know, swipe scroll or like doom scroll sideways uh, through all my apps. And I totally don't know what any of them do anymore, except for the ones that I use on a daily basis. And I mean, they're even named in these like incoherent ways that have nothing to do with their function. You know, like, I don't know, I'm just looking at my dock right now on my Mac and like, you know, the messenger icon has like a lightning bolt on it. Like, what does that have to do with anything? At least WhatsApp has like a phone, which is 
actually uh, anachronistic because the phone, you know, back when you used to have like a rotary phone, like Slack is a bunch of like, like pedals or something like who knows? Like, so anyways, even the way that we build these, these, these designs now um, are almost an alphabet unto itself that you have to learn in order to be able to navigate a, a digital environment or a digital space. And so I think the way that this goes and moves forward, and this is to actually go back to the identity piece, is how do you address software or like a technology product such that you can identify and say, you know, Zoom, I want you to do this for me, you know, or Superhuman, I want you to do that for me. And then how can you find out what its capabilities are through a dialogue, through going back and forth? And then how can that system sort of speak to you in a, in a language or in a way that helps you understand like the process or what it's, what it's doing? Um, that feels like where we're going next. And so being human-centric or creating human-centered designs, I think are about offering technologies and services that meet people where they are, as opposed to like that essentially lean towards the human as opposed to requiring the human to lean towards it. How much do you have to change yourself and the way that you think about the media environment in order to succeed in the media's environment on, on its terms versus, you know, is the media failing because it's not helping to support your success? Like that envelope is anti-human, essentially. Unless you can put the address anywhere you want on it and it kind of, the system adapts and figures it out because, you know, humans are crazy sometimes. They have no idea what, what's going on. Like, you know, like, I heard once that if you sort of think about children, like, like four-year-olds as being kind of like on acid trips all the time, it sort of explains a lot about how they see the world and how they're just kind of like receiving input and everything is magical and everything's amazing. And only over time and through a culturalization do we get to the point where we tune out a lot of irrelevant signals and start to become uh, more rigid in the way that we understand things. And then that's when we start to say, no, you can't do that. No, you can't put that address, you know, on the up, upper left-hand corner of the envelope because it's not going to get the recipient because the mail system is designed in a certain way and it's a government program. And don't you know that the, government, the, the mail has to pay for itself? And, you know, it's like all of the things, like all this irrelevant nonsense that we have up in our mind to help us navigate these complex systems that we built for ourselves, I feel like are not entirely human-centric because they don't kind of meet us where we are in all of our, like, and all of our frailty, I suppose. I know like, this is like very abstract, but uh, like to me, it's like, more of a sense. It's more of a feeling, you know? It's, it's, it's a, they, these are really brilliant points. I think like the lightning bolt versus the, the telephone thing is interesting. Like I had never noticed that until just now. And also yeah. I, I have Telegram next to it and you know, Telegram has, you know, a paper airplane, so. Yeah, the, I think the other beautiful thing is that like this idea of like, forcing users to know which apps do what rather than allowing the actual functionality to come to the surface. It makes a ton of sense. Like these, this app model should go away, right? Well, it was necessary for many reasons. And yeah. to understand why you kind of have to know the history of software and the history of software distribution. And also that that was like the platform and the way in which you could choose things. Like if you remember like the start menu in Windows, I mean, everything was sort of based on text. My dock doesn't have any text on it. It's all colorful icons. And they're all abstractions, you know? Like even Adam, which is my editor, is like an atomic like like nucleus. It has nothing to do with science or chemistry or any of that stuff. It's just writing text. So we've moved, you know, into this spectrum where we can identify functionality through these iconographic representations, through these hieroglyphs, 
And I think it's okay for now, but if I were just starting out in computers, I would feel so lost. I would feel so overwhelmed. I would feel like, why do you guys do things this way? Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So I think that's where like the metaverse becomes more interesting because you can kind of walk around a space. You can explore a space. You can use spatial awareness to remember like, oh, right. Like, you know, it's, it's at the, the shoe tailor where I get my outfits or something where the spatial orientation of things actually has some meaning and where you've had a certain set of experiences in those places. And so you'll go back to them. I, I just feel like that's the way that our minds are sort of set up. Like they're, they're designed, I think, to remember relative relationships to things. I remember, you know, when I've been to Burning Man, it's always so interesting when, you know, after the, like for the first couple of days, I'm really disoriented. And then I quickly remember the map and then I'm able to like get myself around and it just like instantly like falls into place. And then towards the end, as people are leaving and the roads start to disappear, it's almost like Alzheimer's. It's like you kind of like totally like lose your, your handhold and your scaffolding and everything arose. And you're like, what is this world that I was able to navigate before where it made too much sense and I'm losing touch with everything. And I, I don't know, I just, I think that, I feel like I know so much about my digital space, but it's non-transferable. And when I point things out to people that I, I've learned and know how to do, they're like, you can do that. Social studies is a newsletter about the social sciences and their their interplay with technology and business. So I have to ask you, what subjects or learnings from the social sciences do you feel like you draw upon most? Or is there one subject or learning that kind of has been relevant to you recently? I think the two things that I'm most interested in and the social sciences relate to cognitive sciences and human perception. But then also just, I think, like about human relationships and relations in general. I think a lot about like emotions and feelings and the function uh, of our ability to label what are essentially internal phenomena, you know, sadness, fear, shame, uh, anxiety, all of those things that we identify and talk about as though we're sort of like reading from a script of things that are just like happening, you know, to us are like real experiences that are meant to inform our behavior. You know, like if we're feeling anxiety every day, there's probably a good reason for that. Like, like something within us is suggesting that things are off. And so we find ways of ameliorating them or minimizing them or trying to get us back on track and trying to get us back into like, you know, a work mode or something like that. Like, Oh, I just like, you know, smoke some weed or, you know, have a drink or whatever to like mitigate those feelings. And yet going back to the point about, you know, the, the four-year-old and acid, like that information and that awareness and those feelings were hard won. They had to be invented. Like nature invented them and they do things to us to manipulate us, to behave in a certain set of ways, which over successive generations, and I'm talking like, you know, thousands and thousands of generations, they cause us to survive. So I suppose when I think about, you know, software, and I think about the design of technology, and I think about what technology does to us, what it allows us to do to each other, what it allows us to do for each other, what it allows us to do for ourselves. I both look at that with, you know, some fear and some concern, like, are we going down like a path that we can't pull back from? Or are we in this wobbly state where we've just acquired some new capability? You know, I don't know what it was like to be a humanoid 
prior to having hearing and then suddenly having hearing, like evolutionarily, not like being mute or, or deaf rather. But if you were to look at the humans who don't have hearing and then just sort of feel like you have hearing, what is that like? How do you explain your experience to somebody else? In, an, in, a, in a way, I feel like those of us who live in this digital context, the, the, the question and the way that we behave, I think are different than a lot of people who, you know, are still living in a pre-digital kind of mind, mindset. Like the way that they think about privacy and the way that they you know, are worried about being tracked comes from, I think, a different set of fears and concerns that are not necessarily digital native. In the digital like world, everything is tracked. Everything is a, is a line you know, on a console or in a database. So you just can't get away from that. You don't exist unless you have a, an identifier. I mean, literally all memory has an address. That address is an identity. So computing can't exist unless everything has an identity. And then it's a, a matter of transforming that memory and making it into something else. In other words, like take the word the and you want to make it bold. Well, the has to first exist in memory and you have to apply a transformation to it in order to turn it into bold text. So if you come from that set of assumptions or those set of assumptions, which are not necessarily like, you know, humans from the meat space, I think you end up with a different set of questions that you're asking about the environments you're, you find yourself in. So it can be very abstract, but I think what I'm trying to get at is thinking about the ways in which as we've come to understand cognitive science and behavioral science more, as we think about the ways that humans relate to one another, the ways that we communicate, the ways that we feel, the subtle nuance that we're able to pick up uh, when we're in person with people that is unable to be transmitted through a digital medium yet. You know, like you can get like that gut feeling like, oh man, like that person like really like makes me, you know, gives me like the heebie-jeebies or whatever. That is not a feeling that I've ever had, I don't think, in a digital context when I've been on Zoom with someone. Like they might be a little strange, but I don't like feel like, ugh, like I need to get out of here. There's a whole set of other ways that I think that humans sense and communicate and feel that we lose when we move into the, the digital realm. And I don't know if that will ultimately be better or worse for us, or if we will need to balance our time spent in like this digital metaverse along with time spent in the real world. So we are actually magnifying our capabilities in both contexts, as opposed to only optimizing for one or the other. So when it comes to like, like the social studies concept, I both want to understand how these technologies change our own grasp of what is reality and how we live in it, but also to become more self-reflective of the ways in which we're really great and the ways in which we're pretty flawed. Uh, and then to have, I think, interesting conversations about that and how we make up for them or those flaws with technology or without. I think a lot of social media kind of exploits the flaws on like accidentally. But that last point is like, it's brilliant because it's like, we actually haven't had this discussion as an industry. Right. Right. Well, so, okay. I have a point about this. Cause I think, so this is another thing when I was in Scotland and I was walking around this like island and I was in, it was on the, the West coast and I was in the middle of like no place. There was no internet, no whatever. And it had been raining and I was walking up this little hill and as I was walking up the hill, there was like this blackberry bush and like the thorns like grabbed my sock or something. And I looked down and it was like, this, you know, beautiful blackberry bush with all these, all this fruit, but in various states of both ripeness and decay. And of course, I'd been listening to a podcast about Facebook advertising. 
So you have this like crazy juxtaposition, you know, of this sort of idyllic natural environment. And then, you know, how there's going to be this regulation and Facebook's a monopoly and Facebook's so horrible and like all this stuff. And it occurred to me in that moment that what this BlackBerry bush had done was it essentially was an advertisement for the BlackBerry bush. And the BlackBerry bush was attempting to manipulate me. And I, it suddenly like became okay that Facebook does what it does because everything is attempting to manipulate everything else. So to be, to be clear, imagine like I'm a fox and I'm, you know, we're not like with turtles anymore, we're now with foxes. So I'm a fox and I'm like, you know, rushing along. And I presume though, I don't know if this is true, that foxes eat blackberries. Well, you know, maybe I've been like, you know, jabbed by this, uh, whatever, the thorns. So I don't like actually eat the underbrush of the blackberry bush because that would cause it to die. But instead the blackberry bush says, you know what? We need to expand our species. And so we're gonna package up some genetic material and we're gonna put it in this really juicy package. And we are going to basically put it into the postal carrier, which is the fox. And uh, we are going to you know, take the distillation of sunlight and water and nutrients that we have created and provide this fox with some caloric benefits. And then someplace it's, it's gonna shit out the seed and it's gonna create more blackberry bushes. So it's a really good exchange. But the blackberry bush, even though it doesn't have awareness, ultimately what it has done, it has, it has manipulated that fox into becoming a consumer of its product and then becoming a word of mouth or word of ass, I guess, kind of uh, like proponent of the genetic material of that bush, right? And so what's interesting about that is that that is of course an ecosystem where there is mutuality between the blackberry bush and providing calories to the fox and the fox then spreading the seed of that blackberry bush. The problem with Facebook is that Facebook takes that manipulation and says, you know, you want to buy this car or you want to be radicalized, you know, to support Trump or something, right? Allows people to basically plant these poisonous blackberries all over the, the web so, so you can't avoid them. And it's like this hostile environment. So you're feeling constantly stressed and under duress. And so you're constantly making like kind of poor decisions. You're staying up late. You're looking at more of these ads. Meanwhile, Facebook's just ranking it in. And the other problem is that as a result of being in that state of constant and heightened awareness, what starts out as manipulation. Like in other words, the fox may have just had a bunch of blackberries. Maybe the fox is full. The fox doesn't want to have any more blackberries. It needs to go poop out the ones it already has consumed. However, in, in the Facebook case, it's almost like it's like the 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 thorns are like grabbing the, the fox by the legs and like, you know, forcing it to like eat more blackberries. That's coercion. That's that's non-consensual manipulation. And I think where we've gone to with a lot of these social platforms by dent of using psychological manipulation techniques is that we are actually in a space where we are being coerced to act against our own best interests and against our own will. And we pursue that with the thought that advertising should be free and open and people should be able to spread whatever messages they want. But that goes back to the book burning question. Maybe there are some things that are poisonous. Maybe there are some, maybe we need to develop antibodies in the system that actually prevent against what essentially could be poisonous berries. How, how does the body learn you know, that something is poisonous. Well, you know, we've had ancestors that ate the poisonous thing and then died, uh, or then some that ate it almost died, but survived. And now they've developed a flavor palette that like communicates to them, oh, this is sour, oh, this doesn't taste good. The next time they try to eat the blackberry, it turns out that it's actually rotten and there's like gross stuff in it, you know, and you spit it out. Like you have an instant revulsion to it. We don't have that instant revulsion to the type of ads that we see in the digital space yet. Like I'm starting to have that, you know, we have ad blockers. 
So there is, I think, parallels in biomimicry in the space that I think is super interesting. And so I guess the point that I want to make is that everything is trying to manipulate everybody else at all times. Even the way in which I'm talking to you right now, my voice is manipulating your eardrums to basically take thoughts and meaning that is in my mind and is trying to connect to you so you can see the same things that I see. So you can then validate me and say, yes, I see what you're saying, Chris. You're a little crazy, but I get it, you know? And I think if we look at it from that perspective, maybe, you know, we can be less angry about Facebook and more, like you said, start to take responsibility to say, is that actually the way that we want to treat ourselves? You know, because everyone that's been manipulated by the system is still us. Like they are still, we are still one people, we are one species. And although you're taking money or whatever from other people, or you're taking away their agency or whatever it is that you're doing to them, over the long term, you are doing it to yourself. And that I feel like is the way that we need to understand this technology, because if anything, the hashtag has taught me that, that that is the way in which we are all connected. The fact that I was doing this little behavior back in 2007 and thought it was a good idea, and now it's built into like human language, suggests that eventually it all comes around, you know? And the way that I use hashtags is the way that other people are using hashtags. And the way that I would respect people is the way that I would want to be respected as well. And so we have to build technology that takes that into consideration.